everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. Today, we're going to be diving deep into the dark world of the Chicago Ripper crew. These guys are some of the most gruesome, horrific individuals, most evil individuals I've ever learned about. And they terrorized the city of Chicago from 1981 to 1982. And these guys, oh man, you got to get ready. This is probably one of the most gruesome episodes we've ever done. So if you have a weak stomach or you're thinking about eating a meal during this one, uh, I strongly suggest you don't. And also if you know any sort of sexual assault triggers you, definitely don't want to listen to this episode because this is all about the terrorization of sex workers in Chicago that the Chicago Ripper crew targeted during those years. Now, before we get into the Chicago Ripper crew, we're going to jump right into it. But I want to thank our sponsors for today. We've got Bright Sellers, Care Of, and HelloFresh. Really appreciate you guys supporting the show. Along with checking out our sponsors, if you wouldn't mind checking out our merch, we've got some merch still up there at milehighmerch.com. And also a free way that you can help support the show is by going over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Make sure you're subscribed as well as going to Spotify and hitting that follow button. And also if you're watching us here on YouTube or maybe this is the first episode you've ever tuned into, we'd love if you subscribe to the channel and make sure you hit that uh, notification bell so you don't ever miss a new episode from us. With that being said, let's go ahead and jump into the absolutely dark and gruesome world of the Chicago Ripper crew. So the Chicago Ripper crew abducted over 18 women and murdered at least six that we know of. There's still a lot of suspicion out there that there could be far more victims of this crew of serial killers is really what they are, satanic serial killers. And their crimes are so horrific that the reason why they're called the Chicago Ripper crew is because the crimes were on par with the infamous Jack the Ripper serial killer of the UK who terrorized London in the late 1800s. We'll probably definitely have to do an episode on Jack the Ripper at some point. But if you know anything about that, uh, it's very similar to this case because Jack the Ripper murdered a bunch of sex workers and oftentimes or most of the times left their body severely mutilated to the point where these poor human beings were no longer recognizable. So the Chicago Ripper crew was a group that was led by an individual named Robin Gett. And just to give you a little bit of background information on Robin, he was born Robert Gett on November 30th, 1953 in Menard, Illinois. We don't know a whole lot about you know his life and his upbringing or anything like that, but what we do know is that he lived there with his wife, Rosemary, and their three kids, which he had two daughters and a son, and they rented a house in the close-knit residential Chicago neighborhood they lived in. For the most part, Robin and his family lived a very quiet and simple life, and they often kept to themselves most of the time. There was one occasion, though, when two men were fighting outside in the alley behind their house, and Robin actually came out with a shotgun and broke up the fight. And after he did this, he was kind of seen as some sort of a neighborhood hero. His wife, Rosemary, was Catholic, and their daughters attended a local Catholic school. She also waited tables part-time at a local restaurant and sometimes told her coworkers about issues in their marriage. Rosemary said she loved Robin too much to leave him, but she didn't like that he stayed out all night and sometimes brought home girlfriends. So Robin was, you know, not the greatest guy, that's for sure. He was not faithful in their marriage. He was cheating all the time, you know, like we said, bringing people home randomly and, you know, kind of living this double life. He was kind of, you know, when he was out away from his family, he was a completely different person. But, you know, while he was home, he tried to be, I guess, a semi-decent husband and father. From my research that I did on the Chicago Ripper crew, it was very difficult to find a specific moment in time or an event in Robin gets life where, you know, things kind of took a turn for the worst. And it's, it's really interesting that, you know, he had a wife that was Catholic and, you know, his kids are going to Catholic school and yet kind of behind the scenes. And I assume, you know, away from his family, he was starting to dabble in Satanism and specifically devil worshiping. I mean, these guys are definitely not doing your, you know, satanic temple type, you know, version of Satanism. They're, they're dabbling in some very, very evil, dark, uh, Satanism that involves, you know, ritualistic sacrifices of humans and all that. So it's very interesting to me that, you know, there was this, there's must've been something that happened that really kind of sent him over the edge to where he decided, okay, I'm going to form, you know, this crew or this gang essentially of 
individuals and we're going to go out there and start committing these heinous crimes. And I would really, I'd really like to know what that was, or maybe, you know, sometimes people just lose it. I mean, sometimes people, there's no explanation or, you know, particular thing that you can point to that's like, oh, that's why he, you know, became this devil worshiping serial killer. But at some point, Robin decided that he wanted to create a crew together. So he recruited these three guys, Edward Spritzer, as well as brothers, Andrew and Thomas Cocorales. The three members of his newly formed crew, and really at this point in starting to become a cult, were actually a lot younger than him, roughly about 10 years or so younger. And it's really interesting because this is kind of like a Carl Drew situation unfolding, or even a Charles Manson type situation that's unfolding with Robin because he's getting these younger individuals that he can influence and basically kind of get them to do his bidding for him. And we don't really know a whole lot about their upbringing, but we do know that Edward Spritzer was born on January 5th, 1961. And Thomas Cocorales was born on July 10th, 1960. And his brother Andrew's exact date of birth isn't known, but he was born a few years later. So as far as Andrew and Thomas are concerned, they came from a large family. They had several more siblings, including two brothers. They were raised in Illinois, just outside Chicago, in the strict Greek Orthodox Church. So when I hear that, you know, they obviously all had some religious upbringing. And I think, you know, in my mind and coming from somebody that was, you know, in deeply religious growing up and kind of, you know, forced to go down this certain specific path of Christianity that, I could see in some people where, you know, if enough things happen to you or you're angry or, you know, maybe you just at some point become rebellious that you decide, hey, you know what? Fuck the church. Fuck God. I'm going to start, you know, I'm going to go the complete opposite direction. And I feel like that was kind of some of their incentive to become, you know, Satanists is that, you know, they were very unhappy with the church. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, but it seems to me that maybe this was one of their motivations for becoming, you know, these evil Satanists. So the way that Robin actually met Edward Cocorales was that he was living at Rip Van Winkle motel and he worked part-time at a local donut shop and Robin would actually come into the donut shop late at night. And there was one particular night when Edward's car wouldn't start and Robin offered him a ride home. It wasn't long after this that the two actually became good friends and Edward started working for Robin. Edward would actually stay with Robin and his family in their home, and he often babysat Robin's kids. At this particular time, all four men seemed to be leading normal lives for the most part, but they were absolute monsters hiding in plain sight. Robin had a fairly stable job as an electrical contractor, and he also worked as a handyman doing odd jobs for people around his neighborhood. But there was one very questionable thing about the job. When he was a young man, his boss was none other than John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown. It's wild to think that Robin Gett was actually working for serial killer John Wayne Gacy, and John Wayne Gacy was actually leading his construction crew while murdering victims after, you know, doing his construction job. How crazy is that? And this is all before Robin and his Chicago Ripper crew even start their carnage. But if you're familiar at all with John Wayne Gacy, this is all the same area in Illinois And, you know, at the time Robin was doing construction just outside of Chicago, you know, where John Wayne Gacy was at, but eventually John Wayne Gacy did get caught and his trial started in early 1980. Just over a year later in the spring of 1981, Robin and the Chicago Ripper crew started abducting women, replacing one sadistic serial killer with four more. After working with Robin for some time, Edward, Andrew, and Thomas, you know, they were kind of indebted to him. I mean, he was giving them work helping them make money. And so it didn't take long for the men to kind of feel indebted to Robin. And that's when they became his accomplices to his violent crimes. The crew would end up driving around Chicago in Robin's reddish orange 1975 Dodge van. The crew would literally be piled into the van, just creepily driving around the neighborhoods, looking for any woman that might be alone that they could snatch. And once they did find one, they would jump out, pull them into the van, and then they would bring their victim to Robin's house or to a local motel to be tortured and mutilated, and the torture often lasted for hours. Robin also built a satanic temple in his attic. All the walls were painted red with black crosses, which were obviously flipped upside down, and there was an altar covered in candles and a red cloth. 
The women were laid out on the altar or on a bed, and Robin read from the Satanic Bible. And during the reading, Edward, Andrew, and Thomas would rape, stab, and mutilate the victim while she was still alive. Part of the mutilation was amputating the left breast of the victim. And once the breast was removed, the men took turns raping the chest wound and masturbating onto the amputated breast. And then if that wasn't disgusting enough, Robin would then cut pieces from the flesh for the crew to eat. And this was all part of their satanic communion. Because I guess they believe that this would give you know them some type of powers or something like that. It's just absolutely disgusting. But not only that, when they would amputate the breast, this was something that definitely aroused Robin. It's also interesting, too, that Jack the Ripper was also known to amputate the breasts of his victims. And oftentimes, he'd actually leave them near the body. So maybe this was something that they got from Jack the Ripper or it's just some sick fetish of Robin's. But their first victim was a 26-year-old woman named Linda Sutton. Linda was a young mother of two. Her son, Anton, was nine years old, and her daughter, Shavana, was only one. Linda was abducted on May 23, 1981, when she was just walking near Wrigley Field, when the crew rolled up, snatched her up, and threw her into the back of the van. They then handcuffed Linda, tortured, mutilated, and murdered her. Ten days later, the police were called out to the Rip Van Winkle Motel in Villa Park, to investigate a strong smell. They thought they were looking for an animal carcass because of how foul the smell was, but they ended up finding the mutilated body of Linda Sutton, and her body was in absolutely horrible condition. Her flesh had been eaten away by animals and maggots, but handcuffs were still around her wrists, and a gag was still in her mouth. And right away, the police knew that she had been murdered. After her remains were found, the police took the earring she was wearing to her home to identify her. Linda's son, Anton, remembers this day clearly, and even to this day, he is still haunted by the memory. The autopsy showed that Linda had only been dead for three days, but her body was so decomposed, it looked like she had been dead for months. And they discovered the reason for the fast decomposition was because both of her breasts had been amputated, and bodies with gaping wounds decompose at a much faster rate. The autopsy also showed that while Linda was still alive, she had been raped and sodomized multiple times and her left breast was removed. She was tortured for seven days before she died. Thinking about what Linda's last moments must have been like is probably one of the most terrifying things that I can possibly think of. And it's just, it's extremely sad that this happened to her. Also around this time, a woman named Cynthia Smith was abducted by the Ripper crew, but she survived. And there's no other public information about her, but the fact that we knew she survived. On February 12th, 1982, a woman who worked as a cocktail waitress abandoned her car after it ran out of gas. Her purse and keys were still inside, and her nude body was found on the side of the road. She had clearly been tortured, raped, and mutilated, just like Linda. And just days later, the body of a Hispanic woman was found. One of her breasts had been bitten almost all the way through, and she had been masturbated on multiple times. On May 15, 1982, 21-year-old Lorraine Borowski, who went by Lori, walked three blocks from her apartment in Elmhurst, Illinois, to the Remax real estate office where she worked as the office manager. Before she left the apartments, though, she talked to her 14-year-old brother, Mark, and he asked her if she wanted him to walk with her, and she said, no, I'll be fine walking by herself. At 8.30 a.m., she was just outside the office in the plaza and was just going to unlock the door, as she usually did when she opened the office for the day. But that's when the Chicago Ripper crew pulled up in the parking lot in broad daylight and pulled Lori into the van. As she was being pulled into the van, her high-heeled shoes actually flew off and she dropped her keys to the door as well as some makeup from her purse. And when her boss arrived around 845, that's all that he found of her. Just her makeup, shoes, and keys spilled across the parking lot. The door to the office also wasn't open yet, and he knew right away that something terrible had happened. The police were contacted right away, and a search for Lori began. And when the police got there, it became very clear that obviously nobody just drops their personal belongings and just vanishes. So the police knew right away that Lori had most likely been abducted. And it didn't take long for the media to actually cover Lori's disappearance. So here's an actual news report all the way back from May 1982. Neighbors told police that they saw Miss Borowski leave her apartment here at the Elmhurst Terrace complex at about 8 o'clock Saturday morning. 
Miss Borowski is employed as a secretary receptionist at the Remax Real Estate Company, which is located only about three blocks from her apartment. Lorraine was to have opened the office on Saturday morning, but her keys, some cosmetics, and a pair of her shoes were found strewn in front of the firm. Friends and associates of the missing woman have been unable to shed any light on the mystery, but police believe that Miss Borowski has met with foul play. At this point, we're going on the assumption that she was abducted. There's uh, no indication in our investigation for any reason for her to be missing at this point other than uh, by some type of uh, means beyond her control. Raymond Borowski, Lorraine's father, says his daughter is not the type to disappear. And Borowski says the family is considering some kind of reward offer. And back in 1982, I mean, the police didn't have a lot to go off of. She literally just was picked up and poof, she's gone. So they have to just hope that somebody saw something. You know, hopefully somebody saw this van leaving the scene of the crime. But, and it's just crazy to think how brazen these guys were. Literally in broad daylight in the morning, they saw her alone and they took advantage of that opportunity and they just snatched her. And they were out of there before they could ever be caught. But after Lori was abducted, she was most likely taken to a nearby hotel where she was raped and murdered. One of the lead detectives on Lori's case was John Milner. He was also a polygraph expert and a certified investigative hypnotist. And he actually hypnotized potential witnesses to the abductions to see if anyone could remember anything they saw. And while under hypnosis, a business owner in the plaza of Lori's Remax office said he saw a reddish orange van around the time she was abducted. And he said he hadn't seen it before and thought it was strange that it was there. And this was the first time that the police had any sort of lead in the case against the Chicago Ripper crew. And for months, poor Lori's family just had no idea what had happened to her. They had no idea who took her. And so the family would pass out flyers. And I think even at one point they were considering a reward and they were just holding out hope that maybe they would find her alive. And during the months that they were searching for Lori, her mother Lorraine, who Lori was actually named after, always carried a sheet with her. She wanted to be able to cover her daughter's body if she was the one who found it. And she searched everywhere. She would scan streets, sidewalks, alleys, and ditches looking for her Lori. And sadly, it didn't take long for her to kind of come to the realization that most likely her daughter would not be found alive. Just a few weeks after murdering Lori, Robin and his crew spotted 30-year-old Shu Mack in Hanover Park. And Shu had moved to U.S. from Hong Kong three years before, and she had worked at her family's restaurant in Streamwood. And on May 29, 1982, Shu and her brother Kent left the restaurant around 1 a.m. Their parents were planning to leave shortly after, and so Kent and Shu got in the car and started driving home. But that's when they started arguing about a table that he had taken from her at the restaurant that night. So apparently this argument was so bad and, and started getting, you know, dangerous when you're driving down the highway that Kent decided to pull over and literally told Shu to get out and wait for their parents to drive by and pick her up. So literally one o'clock plus in the morning, Shu is a young woman on the side of the highway all by herself. And she had no money and no ID and she didn't even speak English very well yet. Kent just left her there and then went home, and when their parents got there, he told them she needed to be picked up, and so they left immediately to go get her, but when they got there, she was gone. They then called the police, and they put out a bolo right away, and she remained a missing person for four months before her body was found in a South Barrington field in a shallow grave about a mile away from where she had gotten out of her brother's car. When the medical examiner did her autopsy, they found that there were multiple fractures in her skull from being hit with a blunt object. She also had two fractured ribs on the left side of her body and separation of her right forearm bone. Her cause of death was ruled blunt force trauma to the head and fracture of the ribs. On June 13, 1982, a sex worker named Angel York was picked up in a reddish orange van. After getting into the van, Robin then told her to take off her clothes and then he proceeded to handcuff her wrists and ankles and then forced her to perform oral sex on him. He threatened that if she moved, he would stab her with the knife that he was holding. Robin made Angel wrap pantyhose around her breast as tightly as she could, and then forced her to stab herself in the left breast at gunpoint, 
and Robin being the sadistic psycho that he is, he became very aroused while watching her slice her own skin. He then proceeded to use a knife to widen the gash in her chest, and then he raped the wound. After he was done, he closed the wound with duct tape, opened the door of the van, and kicked Angel out, naked and bleeding. He then threw her clothes into the road, and they drove away. Luckily, Angel survived the attack, and she was brought to the hospital where she was stabilized, and that's when police were brought in to interview her about what had happened. And she told the police everything she could remember, but unfortunately, it didn't help them find her attackers. Two more victims were found later that summer. The mutilated body of 18-year-old Sandra Delware was discovered by three children on the bank of the Chicago River on August 28, 1982. That's uh, very disturbing for children to find a mutilated body. God. Sandra had been working as a sex worker in the area, and when they found her, her hands were tied behind her back with shoelaces, and she had clearly been raped, tortured, and mutilated. Her left breast had also been amputated, and her bra was wrapped around her throat. Also, this is very, very disturbing, but a broken wine bottle had been inserted into her vagina. That is, oh. I don't know if you're squirming out there, but I'm squirming in my chair right now. Her autopsy showed that she had only been dead for six hours when she was found. And then the body of 31-year-old Rose Beck Davis was discovered in an alley on September 8, 1982. Rose was a marketing executive and she was found under the stairwell of an apartment building. Her clothes had been ripped off and were found nearby. She'd also been raped repeatedly and tortured just like the other victims. There was also deep wounds to her chest and some reports say her left breast had also been removed. She had also been strangled with a black sock. She had small cuts and puncture wounds across her stomach, and there was also a large pool of blood coming from her backside. And on top of all of this brutality, Rose's face had been hacked by an axe or a hatchet to the point where she was barely recognizable. And clearly, these were the injuries that killed her. So by now, the police realize that, you know, there's not a specific victim profile. I mean, this woman wasn't a sex worker, and the victims were all different ages and races, and they all came from vastly different backgrounds. The only commonality they were able to find between the different women was the fact that they had been walking alone when they had been targeted. And at this point, as you can probably imagine, the community was in a complete state of panic and the media was in a frenzy. No woman in the Chicago area was safe. And even in the full light of day, anyone could be snatched off the street by the Chicago Ripper crew. Before I continue with the story of the Chicago Ripper crew, I want to thank our sponsor, Ping. All right. Let's pick up where we left off. So it's still 1982 and the Chicago Ripper crew still has not been caught. The police are beginning to suspect that there's a serial killer or a group of serial killers that are running around committing these heinous crimes because again, they're tying together that, you know, these are all women that are walking alone as well as the fact that many of them have their breast missing. So Clearly, there's you know some sort of connection there between the different victims. Not only that, this time period of the 1980s is around the time of the satanic panic. So I think they're also starting to realize that okay, the, the you know cutting of the breasts could be used in some sort of satanic ritualistic practice. Unfortunately, the police still had no idea who was committing these murders. They had no suspects. The only leads that they had was the fact that they knew there was this orange van that was driving around abducting women. But then on September 11th, 1982, Carol Pappas, the wife of Chicago Cubs pitcher, Mitt Pappas, disappeared. And her body was actually found five years later, and her cause of death was actually ruled an accident. But many people believe she was a victim of the Ripper crew. On October 6, 1982, Beverly Washington was found in an alley near a railroad track outside of Chicago. She was covered in bruises and blood, but she was still alive. Beverly was an 18-year-old black woman who had been picked up by the Ripper crew as a sex worker. And like the other victims, Beverly had been savagely beaten and stabbed. Her right breast was slashed multiple times and her left breast had been amputated. What Beverly remembered of the attack was unimaginable torture. While inside the van, her hands were handcuffed behind her back and she was force-fed some pills which were clearly given to sedate her. Beverly was then taken to a house where she was tied to a bed where she was then tortured and raped multiple times by the four men. And the way that they actually amputated her left breast is absolutely horrifying. 
one of the men actually wrapped a length of piano wire around her breast and then kept tightening it until eventually Beverly passed out from the pain. They then finished removing her breast and they assumed that she actually died. They then dumped her body near the railroad tracks. And the next thing Beverly remembered after passing out was waking up in the hospital. She couldn't speak and had been put on a ventilator, but she was lucky to be alive. Meanwhile, just a few hours after Beverly was found, the Ripper crew took their next victim. They had accepted a murder for hire contract to make some money. And so they went out and shot and killed Rafael Toredo, the target of their contract, while he was standing at a phone booth with another man. The second man who was there with him was also shot, but he survived. Meanwhile, Beverly's in the hospital bed, unable to speak, but she started using gestures to describe what had happened to her and ended up writing down some key details for the police. What a strong woman to be able to do something like that when you're literally on your deathbed, it seems. But she was able to write down and describe the reddish orange van with the tinted windows in more detail than any other person was able to before. She described how between the front seat and the back of the van, there was actually a plywood divider. And the front mirror had two long blue and white feathers, which this was huge for the police because they finally had, you know, some more details about what the specific van was. It had feathers in where the actual rear view mirror would be. I don't believe there was any rear view mirror because they took it out because there was a, you know, wood divider there. They wanted to keep the back completely sealed, completely blocked from anybody being able to see what was going on in the back of the van. But this was their first big break in the case, and it looked like it might pan out for them. So the police began looking for the specific van that Beverly had described. Because remember, for the past two years, the Chicago area has been absolutely terrorized by the satanic gang that's seemingly hunting women for sport. And, you know, I mean, when the media gets a hold of, of the news of another body and just how horrific the scene is, I mean, this would scare anybody. But finally, the police had enough information because of Beverly to put out an APB for this vehicle. So after they got this information, the police started working even harder on the case. They printed up flyers with a picture of the van Beverly described and handed it out to other sex workers in the area, hoping that maybe one of them had seen it before. But then on October 10th, 1982, Lori Borowski's body was finally found by a group of hunters. At this point, she had been missing for five months and her body had been dumped in an abandoned section of the Clarendon Hills Cemetery, just a few miles from where she had been kidnapped. It was so sad to hear how her body was found too, because it was literally only her skeletal remains that were there. And sadly enough, her parents, Lorraine and Raymond Broski, had to go and identify her based on her jewelry that she had. What's even crazier though, is that Clarendon Hills Cemetery had already been searched several times. And Lorraine said she had been within 10 feet of the spot where her daughter's body was found while searching. That's absolutely crazy to think about. Like, so it's clear that her body wasn't there the entire time and that at some point they dumped it there or they moved it to the cemetery, I guess, hoping that it would just blend in. I don't know. It's, it's very weird that Lorraine remembers specifically searching the cemetery in the exact spot it was found and it not being there. But based on the autopsy that they were able to do on her skeletal remains, it showed that her chest and back had been stabbed multiple times with something similar to an ice pick. Her nose was broken and they believed her left breast had also been removed. The autopsy also showed that Lori was likely kept alive for a while before she was murdered and that the killers may have kept her body for some time before dumping it. And then 10 days after Lori's autopsy, detectives finally spotted the van that matched the description they were looking for. And driving the van was none other than 21-year-old Edward Spritzer. Edward immediately told the police that it wasn't his van, that it was his boss's van, Robert Gett. When the police stopped Edward, he was actually on his way to meet Robin at a job site. And he said, hey, I can take you to Robin if you want. And the police were like, sure. So they followed Robin to the job site and they started talking to Robin. And that's when they realized that Robin fit the description that Beverly gave for the person that attacked her and abducted her perfectly. And when the police looked into the van, everything matched Beverly's description to a T as well. The inside door handles had been modified so that they couldn't be opened from the inside. They also found a tablet inside the van that turned out to be a sedative. So when they found this, the police questioned Robin, but again, they still didn't have enough evidence to hold him or arrest him. But they were certain that they had their man, but he denied any involvement in the crime whatsoever. But they did not let this slow down their investigation one bit. 
They started looking into his background and found out that he had actually been arrested in the late 1970s for contributing to the sexual delinquency of a 14-year-old girl. When he was a teenager, his family sent him to live with his grandmother after he molested his sister. And after doing some more digging, the police found out that Robin had been seen at the Rip Van Winkle Motel. So the police went and talked to the motel manager, and he said that Robin rented rooms all the time with three other men, and they booked connected rooms and threw these crazy parties, the manager said. He also told the police that these men made him uneasy, and he even believed that they might be part of a satanic cult. At this point, they knew, okay, Edward Spritzer's involved, Robin's involved, so now who are these other two guys? So they realized, wow, we have four individuals that are probably all wrapped up in these murders. But before they could move forward with their investigation or start making arrests, they needed to be sure that they got the right guy, that Robin Gett was the one that actually attacked Beverly. So Beverly is still bedridden in the hospital. The police bring Robin to her to do a police lineup with her. And the second Beverly saw him, she became extremely terrified and went into a complete panic as much as one could being bedridden. After being positively identified by Beverly, the police placed Robin under arrest for aggravated battery and deviant sexual assault. But it wasn't long before Robin actually posted bail. Then another sex worker came forward and told the police that he had attacked her as well. So they put out another warrant for his arrest and Robin was arrested again on November 5th, 1982. Two days later, they picked up Edward Spritzer and after interrogating him for hours, he started talking. Edward told the police that they were in a cult that did ritualistic killings of women. He said it began one night when Robin was giving Edward a ride home, and Robin said that they should pick up some whores, and this was the beginning of the murders. They worked out a system where Robin would signal Edward when he wanted to kidnap the woman. The plan was for Robin to drive, and Edward would stay in the back of the van. After Robin would pick up a sex worker, you know, in the front seat, he would then knock on the divider in the van, and that was a signal for Edward to get out of the back of the van, come and get the woman, and bring her back. Robin promised Edward he wouldn't get into any trouble, and so he agreed to the plan. Robin told him, apparently, we're going to take care of a whore tonight. The woman they had picked up that first night was Linda Sutton. Edward told police that Andrew Cocorales was also there when they picked up Linda. And when Linda started to scream, Andrew punched her. Andrew and Edward continued punching her in the face until she stopped screaming. They then brought her back to the motel, where they gagged her and handcuffed her to the bed, and they proceeded to rape her multiple times and repeatedly inserting a Coke bottle into her vagina. They then dragged her into the woods near the motel. At one point, Robin was even alone with Linda for about five minutes, and Edward heard Linda scream, What are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? And this is all things that Edward is telling the police. Edward then said that Robin started to whistle, and so he walked out of the woods, and that's when he saw what Robin had done to Linda. He had amputated her left breast and was now raping the wound in her chest, and the breast was on the ground next to them. They then left her out in the woods to bleed out. Edward then talked about some of the other victims. He said once after cutting off a sex worker's breast, Robin brought it back into the van and put it on the floor. Edward said he didn't like all the blood. Another victim was blindfolded and gagged before Robin shot her in the head. They then tied her body to two bowling balls and threw her in the river. Her body was never found. Edward also said once Robin beat a woman to death with a hammer, and Edward ended up throwing up from the side of it. He talked about how excited Robin would get when he cut off a breast, and sometimes he was so riled up, he started having sex with the amputated breast immediately. He then described the torture and the murder of Rosebeck Davis in the alley in great detail. Edward said Robin cut off her breast while she was still alive and started raping the wound. Blood was gushing everywhere, and the woman was screaming, but Robin was completely unfazed by what was going on. And when he was done, he beat her to death with an axe. The police then brought Andrew in for questioning next, and when they showed him a picture of Lori, he admitted right away that him and Edward had murdered her in the cemetery. He explained that he and Edward saw Lori in the plaza one morning and decided to kidnap her. They forced her into the van and took her to the cemetery where they beat and stabbed her. Once they knew she was dead, they dragged her into the remote part of the cemetery and left. Andrew ended up confessing to 18 murders during questioning and confirmed everything Edward had told them. Investigators learned more twisted details about the murders from Andrew. He said Robin would force them to rape the chest wound of their victims after removing the left breast. 
Then he made them masturbate on the severed breast and eat it. Oh, my God. Andrew claimed that Robin forced them through a sort of mind control and then put them into a trance. So it seems like these three guys really believe that Robin had some sort of satanic powers. You know, he was getting some supernatural abilities from the devil and, you know, they had to follow him. They had to do what he said or else. And I mean, it's a full on little cult that they had going on here. Very sick one at that. Andrew went on to say that after Robin had raped Linda Sutton, he used a homemade hatchet to bash her chest. But after talking to Edward and Andrew, the police knew that they had one more man to find. And that's when they brought in Andrew's brother, Thomas, for questioning. And Thomas started confessing almost immediately. Thomas described the gruesome rapes, torture, and murders that took place at the motel or in Robin's attic while his wife was at work. He was literally doing this in the attic of his family's house. How sick is that? Thomas also confirmed to police that they were a part of a satanic cult that ritualistically sacrificed women they kidnapped from the streets. He said that Robin was absolutely obsessed with mutilating breasts and that they would remove the breasts with a piano wire or knife while the women were still alive. And he also confirmed that they would rape the chest wound as well, which was the climax of the ritual. He also confirmed that after they were done raping the chest wound that they would all masturbate into the severed breast and then Robin would take it and slice four pieces of flesh from the breast and then they would each eat a slice. And then Robin would keep the rest of the amputated breast in a box and Thomas said he once saw a box of 15 breasts. So that right there tells you that there's probably at least 10 to 15 victims. And it seems like there's probably far more than that even. I mean, they were just going on a complete terror. The police also found out that during these attacks, the men were drinking heavily most of the time and on drugs as well. So it's possible some of the details of these crimes changed multiple times. They couldn't even remember all their victims or where they had dumped all the bodies. But during questioning, Thomas admitted that he was involved in Lori's murder. This was when the four men were dubbed the Chicago Ripper Crew. Robin still wouldn't admit to anything. He now only agreed to be questioned with his lawyer and said he never so much as hurt a woman before. He dismissed the idea that he could control his crew with supernatural and magical abilities as well. So he completely denied this idea that he was a satanic cult leader. Completely. He said, I'm innocent. I had nothing to do with any of this. At some point, Robin did talk about how all the men in his family were obsessed with large breasts and fetishized them. To him, women's bodies were objects for his pleasure. An ex-girlfriend later said Robin demanded multiple times that she slice off her own nipples and threatened that he would do it for her. He also had an ex-wife who had scars on her chest from slicing her skin. And Rosemary believed that Robin was completely innocent, even though she admitted that he had sliced her breast against her will. There was even somebody said that he would, during sex, he would like put needles into their chest. Just absolutely sick. A complete sadist. Edward, Andrew, and Thomas gave the police detailed accounts of the rituals, but none of them would explicitly say that Robin had been the one to commit any of the murders. With no physical evidence to tie Robin directly to the murders, the police charged him with the attempted murder and rape of Beverly Washington. And Robin Gett was found guilty on September 29, 1983, and was sentenced to 120 years in prison. He'll actually be eligible for parole in 2042. The other three men were charged with murder, though, and Andrew Kokorales was found guilty and actually sentenced to death. And because of his Greek Orthodox upbringing, the church tried to stop his execution but was unsuccessful. Andrew ended up being executed by lethal injection on March 17, 1999, and he was 35 years old. And Andrew is actually the last person to be put to death in Illinois. On March 4, 1986, Edward Spritcher was found guilty of Linda Sutton's murder and pled guilty to an additional four murders, and he was actually sentenced to death. But years and years later, on January 11, 2003, Governor George Ryan actually commuted his death sentence. But Thomas Kokorales had a much different fate than his brother Andrew. On May 18, 1984, he was convicted of the murder of Lori Borowski. The prosecution requested the death penalty, but instead the judge sentenced him to life in prison. Thomas didn't testify during his trial, but he spoke at his sentencing hearing and denied any involvement in Lori's murder. On November 13, 1987, a state appeals court reversed his conviction and ordered a new trial because of legal errors made during his first trial. But then on July 16, 1987, 
He pled guilty as part of a plea deal. And in exchange for his guilty plea, he received a 70-year sentence and the charges for Linda Sutton's murder were dropped. And at this time, standard sentencing guidelines included a rule that allowed day-for-day credit for good behavior. This rule no longer applies to violent offenders, but it allowed for Thomas's early release. He was initially scheduled for release on September 30th, 2017. But the families of the Ripper Cruise victims were outraged, as you can probably imagine, and spoke out strongly against his release. Thomas wasn't able to find approved housing before his release date, which meant he was technically in violation of his parole, and the date was postponed. And while in prison, he was analyzed by multiple psychiatrists and psychologists. The police hoped that they could prove he was a sexually violent person so he could be involuntarily civilly committed. But the experts disagreed. To meet the legal criteria, they needed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he had a mental disorder that made it very probable that he will commit a violent, sexually motivated crime in the future. And these professionals all concluded that he was easily manipulated follower with an IQ of 75, which is just above mentally impaired. He was viewed as a people pleaser who wasn't sexually violent and was only a danger to himself. Hmm, I don't know about that. His only prior criminal record before his arrest was from using cocaine and marijuana. Some even believe he only confessed to help his brother. But investigators on the case don't buy it. They recorded his confession in November 1982 where he described the murder of Lori Borowski in grisly detail. And after giving that confession, he later pretty much recanted it, saying the police pretty much coerced him and were giving him leading questions, you know, in order to sort of, you know, get him to memorize or come up with a confession. But investigators say his IQ is too low to memorize details of a crime he wasn't present for because he did know a lot of details that only a person that was there and committed the crime would know. Thomas later on claimed that he was actually on drugs during that initial interrogation and that he had an alibi for Lori's murder. And he said that he was with his father visiting his mother's grave when Lori was murdered. And interestingly enough, in Edwards' tape confession, he didn't mention that Thomas was even there. So after serving an additional 18 months at the Medium Security Illinois River Correctional Center, authorities said they couldn't hold Thomas any longer, and Thomas was released from prison on March 29, 2019. Thomas was 58 years old and had served just half of his 70-year sentence when he was released. And the families of these victims, especially Lori's family, were definitely upset by the news that Thomas was now going to be just back out there in the world, free. And I'll play a little clip of, of the family talking about how Thomas's release affected them. For Lori Ann Borowski's mom and brother. She was my big sister. This is a day they dreaded. I'm shaking at the thought that this murder is walking free among us. It makes me feel sick to my stomach. I never, never let a day go by where I don't think of Laurie and what she went through. It's awful because you don't know what he's going to do. You don't know where he's at. Her murderer did not receive the justice that he deserved. I can only imagine how difficult it would be to to know, you know, your loved one or your family member, your sister, your daughter, their killer is just going to be free and didn't even serve his whole sentence because of broken sentencing, you know, rules with the criminal justice system. I mean, how upsetting that that must have been for them to to have to face that reality. And again, I mean, we don't know 100% if if Thomas participated in the murders or not, but I think, I mean, I think he's guilty by just association, but Thomas claims he's completely innocent. He had nothing to do with it, and we'll hear from him here in a second. But after he was released because he had nowhere to go, no family, he was taken in by Wayside Cross Ministries in Aurora, Illinois, which is like a Christian recovery center for uh, convicts, basically, to try to get rehabbed and back on their feet but uh, i just wanted to play this quick clip of thomas so you can just hear what he has to say i was stuck doing the time for something i didn't do lorraine's murder all of the other women that you were accused of being involved with their murders you were not involved that's what you're saying yes the fact that these women were mutilated and tortured as some sort of ritual is that true no 
there were allegations that there was cannibalism. That true? No. Did you have any knowledge of that happening? Like I said, no. Rape and torture. You have any involvement in that? No, ma'am. I looked in your eyes and I'm telling you, down the sky's truth, no. I have no participation, no knowledge. I have no participation in none of these crimes, none. None. After I watched the interview, I don't know. I, I don't believe him at all. I think he's just lying because he doesn't want to, you know, he's out and he doesn't want to be guilty for these horrific acts. I mean, but that's, that's just me. What do you think? Yeah, I don't buy anything that comes out of his mouth. And I mean, his face too. And it almost looks like he was just angry the whole time, just in complete denial. And like you said, it's just in his own self benefit because he doesn't want to do any more time and all of that. But it's like, dude, you're such a fucked up person to like not speak the truth about what's happened, you know? Yeah, seriously. Like to just deny all of it and be like, none of it happened. Clearly something happened. Clearly Lori was, you know, all these women were tortured and murdered, but yet you know nothing of it. And yet your brother was one of the murderers. And, you know, you were literally hanging out, driving around this van with Robin. Like there was nothing like and the fact that all of them just deny it is just so cowardly. It's like at least own up to what you did and give these families some closure, but to just be denying it and all of them deny it. Robin to this day in prison denies that he has anything to do with it. And he claims there's even DNA evidence or they're waiting for DNA to be tested to exonerate him, which is crazy to think about. I mean, it seems like this is a, uh, a slam dunk as far as who did these crimes. It really seems like these four men carried out all of these murders, but they're claiming that they've got the wrong guys. I don't know though. I, I feel like they got the right guys. Thomas is out. I mean, he's living in this wayside cross ministries and he's a Christian all of a sudden. And, you know, he's trying to turn his life around. He says he's, you know, never been calmer. He doesn't have a bad attitude anymore. And I guess he's getting his life on track, but he, and, and what's crazy is that they asked him if he would be willing to speak to Lori's family. And he said, no. And they're like, do you have anything to say to them? And he was like, no, just, I feel bad for them is all he said. It's like, really? That's all you can offer. And I mean, he does seem like he's might be mentally challenged a bit, but I don't know. He seems pretty, pretty competent to me. I, I feel like he's just covering for his buddies and he's just, you know, he's been in prison for 35 years or whatever. So he's, he's not going to start like get out of prison and start like spilling the beans on everybody and giving you know, you know, all of the details. He's, they're just going to act like nothing happened because he's trying to get his friends out of jail too at this point. Cause he got out. So they're like, why don't we get out too? And what's even crazier is that he's not even, he's not on parole anymore. He, all he has to do is register his address with the state, but he doesn't have to follow, you know, all the usual conditions of parole. But as long as he lives in Illinois, he is going to be a registered sex offender because his crime was sexually motivated, but he doesn't actually have to follow the rules for other sex offenders, like living a certain distance away from schools or not taking jobs with kids. How scary is that? This guy could literally go start working at, at like a children's uh, attraction or something and they couldn't stop him because he has these special rules in place for him. Despite being a registered sex offender, how does that work? That doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. That's honestly scary because I feel like this individual could absolutely reoffend. I'm with Lori's family. I think this guy is a danger to society and there is a high chance this guy will reoffend. So the fact that he's out is is honestly truly scary and I, I feel extremely bad for Lori's family that they have to deal with this and despite him being released nothing in illinois state law could prevent thomas from contacting their family he could just show up if he wanted there's nothing you know it's not like there's a restraining or there's nothing preventing him from doing something to the family if he wanted to and meanwhile all this is happening robin and edward are still in prison uh, they've exhausted their appeals and they have no chance of early release, but they're still trying to, you know, hopefully get their sentences overturned and commuted and released. Um, but Robin is in prison until he's 89 years old, but he could also be free once again, once he reaches that, that age. But at the end of the day, I think it's just absolutely crazy that none of them have ever admitted to any of the crimes, despite it seemingly pretty obvious that they were the Chicago Ripper crew. I mean, they were identified there in the vehicle that was seen at the scene of the crime abducting these women. I mean, I don't know how they think they're going to get out of this or 
and, and luckily they haven't, you know, there's nothing that's been out there in the news lately that, that they're going to let Robin go free or there's nothing that's overturned his sentences or anything like that. So those two will still be in prison uh, probably until the day they die. But at the end of the day, we still don't know exactly how many murders they committed. There could have been even more than the 18 or 20 that they, they think there is. Um, I mean, there still might be murders that might get traced back to them in the future. So I don't know. It's, it's just an absolutely crazy, crazy story and, and extremely sad at the same time. What these poor women went through, I can't even imagine. I mean, torture is just one of those things that I, I think is probably the worst thing you could possibly imagine for anybody to have to go through. And I really feel for these victims and their families and having to remember your sister as, you know, her last moments of life were so horrible and so painful. It's just, it's gotta be really, really hard to, to just deal with it. And, you know, on top of that, to have these guys seemingly, you know, on the defense of being released potentially based on, you know, new evidence that comes out or, you know, Thomas, he's already out there. It's just got to be so, so hard. So I definitely feel for them. And, you know, as always, I want to remember the victims in these horrific crimes. Hopefully, though, through DNA testing and, you know, further investigation by the police that they will actually be able to, you know, charge these men with all of the murders that they've committed and that justice will be served for them. And, you know, obviously, they're probably not going to get out of jail, but hopefully the families of the victims get the closure that they need. But with that being said, we'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Hopefully you enjoyed this very disturbing episode of the Lights Out podcast. But until next time, lights out, everybody.